Women in Leadership brought to you by Heron Code, the management consultancy for what happens next. For more information, you can visit heroncode.com. In this podcast, we will be talking to female leaders of today to inspire the leaders of tomorrow. On today's episode, we are joined by Sarah Kawash, who has built her career in the last 15 years in the healthcare industry within multinational companies, both in the pharmaceutical and medical sector. She's also working with a global medical device company championing women's health. I think I wanted to be a theologist, and then I wanted to be an ambassador, and then I wanted to be an architect. I don't want to be referred to as a woman leader. I'm a leader full stop. It can be sometimes surprising to be a woman from an Arabic origin or culture. We tend to hire people like us. We tend to like to work with people like us. I never say things by mistake. I'm very conscious of what I'm saying and the impact it will have on the person. I can teach people skills. I cannot teach them values. I want it to be them. I think it comes with years and maturity. Now I have accepted that I will never be them, but I can be myself. Women in Leadership brought to you by Heron Code. Sarah Kawash, how are you? Good, Nini. Very <laughs> happy to be on the show. Nervous, if I have to be fully honest. No. But very excited to be here as well. Look, I think this is going to be such a great conversation because uh, what we really want is the listeners to take away from your journey and understand how you got to where you are today. And I'm sure there's uh, many stories and, and many things that you can share with us today and where you are. But I want to take you back because I think that that's really important to do. So what I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, born in Algeria, um, you were raised there as well. Tell me more about that upbringing and how your childhood was. Well, I'm glad you're asking the question because I definitely share your belief about the fact that our upbringing and where we were born, at least in my case, has been fundamental in what I have become in in the way I interact with people and how I perceive the world uh, around me. So I was born in Algeria. I'm the eldest of three daughters. So a very feminine um, (laughs) upbringing by amazing, outstanding parents that are at the core of everything that I do. I guess that making my parents proud is definitely the first motivation in Mm. everything that I have accomplished after that. And I have moved after my university degree to the UK, then Mm -hmm. to France and now to Dubai. So been around different cultures, different Mm. cities, and it's something that I enjoy very much. Mm. And it's interesting because I'm the same. I have, uh, I only have one sister, but my dad's side of the family, the seven girls on my mom's side is eight girls, no boys. So you being uh, one of three girls, it's just a given in my mind for a woman to do whatever she wants was just a given. It was natural. I never was told or believed anything else. Was that the case for you, even living in Algeria? Absolutely. You are spot on. And especially being raised by a man like my father, Mm. who has definitely taught us to be independent. That was something very important for him. Raise our opinions and share. So I've never had an example where a woman could not do whatever she wanted Mm. to do. We needed to behave in a certain way. So there were criteria of a woman needs to be soft. Mm. Um, You should not raise your voice. You should not do X, Y, Z. But it was more about education and good manners than it was about as a girl, 
you cannot do X, Y, Z. So mm -hmm. I have never had that gender challenge of yeah. not being allowed to do things because I was a girl. Mm. And what were you like? Were you an introvert? Were you an extrovert when I you were still younger? One. <laughs> <laughs> I was an introvert, a solitary, and I still am an introvert and a solitary mm. who learned to adapt. As a kid, I've never dreamt about ruling the world, but more about understanding and, and contemplating. So that's probably the introvert and the solitary part of it. Mm. I was a quiet, top of her class child, no issues there. But also because although it has never been expressed uh, by my parents, I always thought that's what was expected of me implicitly or that's what it would take to be loved. I had to perform. I had to be that, that good for mm -hmm. them to be To, to love me and therefore to be proud of me. And I think I still do until today, try to do the best <laughs> to get accepted, to get validated. At the end of the day, that's what we all look for deep down mm. in one way or another. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. And, and one thing you mentioned, education. Uh, where, did, where did your education route take you? You were focused, you were top of your class at all times. At what point did you know what you wanted to study or do at university? I never did. I was passionate about all subjects and very curious about all subjects, whether it's science or mathematics or physics or history. So I never knew what I wanted to do. I still don't <laughs> to a certain extent. I always known what I didn't want. And I think now I'm comfortable with it while there is this pressure uh, or I felt it as a pressure earlier to have dreams, to know exactly what you want to become. I have accepted now that knowing what you don't want can be a luxury to a certain extent because then it leaves so many more options. So I was I was passionate absolutely about so many subjects that I didn't necessarily choose one specific. When I was five, I think I wanted to be a theologist. Mm -hmm. And then I wanted to be an ambassador when I was about 10, 15. <laughs> and then I wanted to be an architect. And today it feels like I, I'm, I'm none of those mm. and all of them at the same time in what I do, because I am building as businesses, teams, as mm -hmm. an architect would do. And I'm managing diplomatic situation within <laughs> the workplace yeah. uh, as a diplomat would do or an ambassador would do. And I've evolved in so many cultures and around so many people that understanding theology was also about understanding human being beliefs. And so I feel like, yeah, without being, I, I always say, I like to be the jack of all trades and the master of none. So, yeah, that's, uh, I'm not answering your question, by you, the way. You absolutely are, because <laughs> I, I think that's so fascinating because we all have these dreams when we're younger. You know, I want to be a footballer, I want to be a ballerina, whatever it may be. But it's interesting because even if you don't become a footballer, you still might have the work ethic of, a, of an athlete yeah. in any industry that you go into. And, and you very much use that analogy, which I love and I think that's so interesting. Um, tell me more about moving from Algeria to the UK, because was that against the norm of what people were doing in your community or around you? It, it, was it a big move? How was it for your parents to let their daughter go uh, to another country? I was supposed to move immediately after I got my baccalaureate. And at the time that was for my parents, that was too early, too young, not yet. So 
to answer your previous question, uh, what I studied is pharmacy. So I have a doctorate in pharmacy. And uh, at the time, they preferred for me to stay around and secure my diploma. And so that's what I, that's what I did. I, I could have studied medicine. I could have step, went into law, but mm-hmm. pharmacy seemed to be a good choice. My father has always told me you will start by wanting to do the job that you love, and then you'll end up doing the job that allows you to do what you, what you love. Mm. And for him, pharmacy was one of those jobs that was perfect. And so after I finished, so I was very, very in a hurry to finish my study because they promised that once I do, then I was, I finished, I was 21. So I was supposed to go do architecture right after that. So he said, secure your future with the pharmacy. Mm -hmm. And then if you want to go into art schools or into architecture, you can do that later on. Mm -hmm. You'll still be young to take another degree. Yeah. And that was the plan. And so initially I I was, I was, um, I applied for an art school I got accepted and then they were like, okay, how about you take a year to think about it, take a master's degree and move to London. And so I did that. And then after that, decided to go into research instead of architecture, Mm -hmm. (laughs) tried research for two years. I love puzzles. I love enigmas. I love (laughs) so research. I, I need my brain to be kept busy. And I was an idealist at the time. I still am, but mm. a more mature idealist, let's say. Yeah. So I went into research thinking it's going to be challenging and stimulating every day. And, it, and at the end, it wasn't mm. for me. And that's where I decided to reroute my career or pivot into marketing and strategical communication in the healthcare mm. uh, industry. And that's probably the first choice I made for myself. Yeah. Because what's interesting here, and I think that what a lot of listeners can take away from this is that you can have a plan, you know, you can have a plan A, you can have a plan B. It doesn't always go that way. You you feel it, you sense it, you move with the times, you change, your needs and your goals change. Were you quite conscious of that during your changes, you know, because there's a lot of fear attached to change, isn't there? And that if you do have a set path in your mind of, I want to do this now, okay, I'm going into architecture, but then changing it up again, going into research, was that quite scary for you? How was that? Or was that quite an easy flowing process? It was an exciting one. There was no fear uh, Mm. really about it. I'm very comfortable with changing my mind about things. I, I don't take it necessarily as a failure. Neither would be giving up on something because if I do, then it doesn't mean that much for me. And if it doesn't mean that much, then why pursue something just to make a point of not being called a quitter, right? Mm-hmm. So I am very comfortable with that. So it has never been it's, it's scary. It's after making the decision mm. that I start to be like, okay, am I really making the right decision? Mm. So there is that instinct. Even in my career, changing from one company to, to another has always been a very instinctive uh, decision. I've never left a company because I wasn't comfortable or feeling uh, appreciated that I, I loved every experience that I have had. But there is this voice that said an opportunity comes and I've never taken job interviews, but every time I took one, Mm. I left. So there is this instinct of, okay, this is it. I do get scared once the decision is made in that transition period. And once I start the new journey, Mm. I completely forget about it, to be honest. 
Wow. Wow. Well, you're a rarity then, (laughs) definitely. And that's probably what's been an absolute asset to your success today. Um, Now, moving across to different countries and, you know, that you're experiencing so many cultures, so many uh, human to human connections, you're learning so much about the world, the people in it. How important has that been in carving who you are today as a leader and what you do? It has been critical in being able to remain open as much as possible to other ideas, to other culture, but also to understand, going back to your initial question, the impact of the environment and the culture we grow up on who we become and and the perspective we can have, the lens through which we view things. So I I would say it has been very critical, Mm. but sometimes even within the same culture, individuals are different, I think. Human being are the puzzle I'll never finish. And, yeah. and it's quite exciting <laughs> to try to understand. It's the most exciting part, but it's valid for a leader. It's valid for us as just human being. It's valid in interacting with your kids, with your siblings, with your parents, with, with anyone, actually. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it has been um, it has been definitely critical in who in who I am and how I have. Uh, evolved. Yeah, absolutely. And and I want to talk specifically about the healthcare industry now. Mm-hmm. Um, you're best to tell me more. You've worked for multinational companies. Um, tell me what the scope is like when you first joined the industry for women and where it is today. My first experiences uh, were in the pharma industry, in wider, I would say, departments and not necessarily targeting women or working on women health as per se. Hologic, the company that I work for currently, is a medical device uh, organization that is championing uh, women health. And that is definitely something that I'm very proud of today, to be part of an organization that is championing women health. And it is in our DNA. So I'm also very lucky to evolve in that environment and be surrounded by colleagues and by leaders who mean it, who embodies those values, who think about, I think all of them have at least a daughter, a wife, a mother, mm. but that's the people they think of in, in their in doing the best they can every day. But if you ask me about the industry in general, Uh, How has it evolved? I think we still have a lot of work and improvement to do as an industry, but also within our communities, within our governments, when it comes to women healthcare and and women well-being as well. There is an interesting initiative that my company has started about two years ago called the Global Women Health Index. And it's a multi-year comprehensive global survey that intends to help fill the critical gap about uh, in in what the world knows of women uh, health. And uh, like our CEO says all all the time, uh, you can only improve what you can measure. And there is no data really today to help policymakers and governments, especially in the low-income countries, work on those areas that need to be improved and how to support women health. So I'm very proud today to be part of an organization that has provided such an invaluable tool and that is spreading it. Um, We had amazing echo in um, sub-Saharan Africa, for example, Mm -hmm. presenting uh, the data. And that led to very 
powerful conversations and, and dialogues. So it's very fulfilling today for me to be, I chose to, I've been part of this organization before, had to leave for other uh, mm. reasons, but I chose to return to this organization. And uh, it feels like, yeah, I am where I should be right now. Mm. So that's perfect. I, I love that. I, I think that's so important. And, you know, it's interesting because everyone has a different experience within their journey, whatever industry you're from. And every every guest I've spoken to on this podcast has shared their story as being a woman in their industry. Um, we spoke off air about this. And I think it's really important for you to share your story in that you felt like you haven't really experienced, uh, you know, prejudice or, you know, any kind of negative negativity around you being a woman in, in your industry. Could you could you tell me more? You are absolutely right. I've never felt that being a woman was an obstacle in my career. So maybe I have been lucky or mm. maybe I chose places where I was <laughs> accepted, mm. you know, for who I am. It can be the only thing I noticed that it can be sometimes surprising to be a woman from an Arabic origin or culture. Mm. So that was the part where people would be be surprised mm. um, but it was more about where I come from mm -hmm. than me being uh, a woman uh, you were asking me earlier if that was not the norm for girls in Algeria mm -hmm. to live abroad and and to leave and, and I think um, that's the perception that sometimes people would have as well but no I've been um, I've been blessed I guess and I had amazing mentors And actually, it's a conversation that we have, whether it's with members from my team who are female or with colleagues, I do not appreciate being called a woman leader. Mm. Like, you, you never hear, whenever I hear that, oh, it's so nice to have a woman mm. in a leadership position or a woman leader. No one says a man leader as if it was just normal. If you say a leader, per default, you can guess that it's a man. And you have to put that label of woman next to it. If we really want equality and for it to be just natural and spontaneous, I feel we should. I don't want to be referred to as a woman leader. I'm a mm -hmm. leader full stop. Yeah. That's what I would like to, or at least that's what I aspire to become. Mm. But not that being a woman does not influence my style or the way I perceive things uh, or the way I interact with my team. It definitely plays a role in it, mm. but we cannot reduce it to that. So, mm. yeah. Strip us of all the labels, I think. Yeah, yeah. don't put us in a box. Um, I would like to ask you, I mean, being a... The, the Arabic woman stigma, and I'm sure you're referring to certain situations that may have happened along your journey. How did you react to to being, you know, maybe stereotyped or, you know, people you said were shocked or surprised by by you being an Arabic woman in, in that kind of position? Um, how did you naturally react? Because it takes a lot of resilience, it takes thick skin to be able to stand your ground and, you know, speak your mind. What was your what was your experience? I think you said a key word there, which is having a thick skin. I've always mm. been comfortable with stigmas or criticism. I don't see it as a negative thing, which is a problem, by the way, when you <laughs> mirror it on others and you think that they are like you. And so you're just open in the feedback that mm. you provide because they would react differently. But that's a different topic. Yeah. But 
it was always a very calm conversation, I guess. Just uh, giving examples of other people who have the same path and, and just making it normal. I've never really debated it or felt mm. angry or hurt by it, to be mm. honest. I understood where they come from because I'm exposed to the same media to the same environment mm -hmm. than the one that they are exposed to. So I understand where that comes from. And if I put myself in their shoes and I'm really honest with myself, I would have probably had the same stigmas than the one they did. I have my own stigmas mm -hmm. based on where I come from in the way I perceive other cultures and other people. Mm -hmm. So this is why it was more of a dialogue, but I didn't feel hurt about it. You don't know what you don't know, right? Mm -hmm. So if you only hear about it in the news and if all you hear about it on the news is how women are not allowed to get education or go out or then that shapes mm -hmm. your, your mind, right? And unless you have met people who take the time to explain, to show a different mm -hmm. uh, angle to where we come from, to, our, to the Arabic culture, mm -hmm. I can't blame them for having those assumptions. So I was very calm about it. Yeah, I think it's a level of conditioning, isn't it? And, you know, it's our, I guess, responsibility to either let them be or just recondition or give them the option of, of new information. Um, to re-educate them. So on your bio, it says Sarah is often referred to as cold-headed, warm-hearted. Can you break that down for me? What does that mean? Cold-headed, warm-hearted. So I would say that that is the sweetest compliment I've ever had. Mm. And I was very happy about it. That people say it in different ways. So cold-headed, it comes in both the professional and personal environment, as in people would call it blunt in my feedback or in the way I would express my opinion. Mm -hmm. So I can be extremely pragmatic, which, which can be surprising uh, sometimes. But just because if people ask for opinion or an advice, then I give an opinion or an advice in, mm -hmm. in a very direct way, I guess. And yeah, at work, I mean, for sure, for my team, it's always confusing. <laughs> I learned to accept that um, because I am so compassionate on a personal level. And somehow that empathy and compassion disappears when numbers are on the screen and, yeah. and we're talking business. Then mm. that, that's the part where it's uh, confusing for people because I have a very informal leadership style. I'm I, I'm, I'm very comfortable uh, with discussing personal things. I care a lot genuinely about the team around me, about understanding people, about knowing about them. But then that does not prevent me from giving difficult feedback if, if it's needed, obviously. Mm. So it's always very confusing. So that's the cold-headed, warm-hearted, which can be a struggle sometimes for people to see. But also, I think it comes with being a woman mm -hmm. in, in, and what's expected from us to be soft, to be gentle. And then you enter a meeting or a business conversation and you're very... I mean, it's perceived as tough for me. It's just factual. I mean, facts yeah. are facts, right? So no, absolutely. Sometimes and you can use it to your advantage, to be honest mm -hmm. with you. That takes people by surprise because they think it's going to be easier to negotiate with you because a woman, because you are a woman. And then you start the conversation and it's like, oh, okay. Right. <laughs> so sometimes you can use it to your advantage as well. I mean, you've, you're very, you're a results-driven leader. 
but you also are very focused on creating high performance teams around you. And, you know, this cold headed, warm hearted has got you there for a reason. But when it comes to building a team, I think it's uh, it's tough for a leader, right? Because you want to be that person who understands them on a human to human level, but then also you're all there to do a job. So how do you find that balance? Making the time for both, having quality time with the team to have that human to human interaction and equally having time where it's where you're mentoring, where you're coaching and where we're talking about uh, our projects or, or, or giving feedback on a professional level. So I think it's the, the balance you find it in just making the time uh, mm-hmm. for both, but also in being open and upfront about it. So it is a conversation that I have with with my team, but not just my team, with colleagues, with counterparts from other departments. Self-awareness is extremely important. And so I never say things by mistake. I'm very conscious of what I'm saying and the impact it will have on the person. And I know that impact may make them feel uncomfortable and I take no pleasure into it. But right or wrong, I think it's necessary for them mm-hmm. to, to hear it. And I allow them to express that they are uncomfortable uh, with it. So I do have just open conversations with my team saying, I know it's disturbing that I can go from being very nice <laughs> and having uh, a nice chat with you to being what you would perceive as just cold and, and, and factual. And you have to feel comfortable about sharing with me how you feel about it. You have to feel comfortable about telling me I did not like this or I like mm. I would prefer to do things in a different way. So just allowing people to really feel safe to express mm. their opinions has been, I, I don't know, we'll have to ask my team to see <laughs> if I'm doing a good job at it or not. I have no idea. And I have also accepted that it may not be good for everyone, uh, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I have leaders, I have known leaders that were not the right fit for me and for whom I was not the right fit. And accepting that is also very important. So, yeah, I mean, but I'm trying to have a team that is as diverse as possible, mm-hmm. being conscious that we tend to hire people like us. We tend to like to work yes. with people like us. So I'm trying to have a team that is as, as diverse as possible. But within my team, the key, again, is the freedom of speech or being, yeah, feeling yeah. safe to express yourself mm. is how you create um, the balance or at least how you find it, how you know that you don't have it mm-hmm. and then build on that. So that's the common trait that I look for in my recruitment is people who can express, um, feel comfortable with, with, with expressing their opinion. And I try to create that environment for them as well. Mm. And I think what's interesting is it's a collaborative process, isn't it? It's two ways now. I feel like leadership used to be very much just one way uh, in mm-hmm. a traditional sense. And now people are actually understanding that's just not how it works. And that's how you don't get the results. Um, but what's interesting is, you know, the, the teams that you have built, you said you do have, that's what you look for when it comes to recruiting. What else is it that you look for within your teams? When, when you are going through the recruitment process, you know, of course, you're looking at results and who can bring you the results. But what other characteristics is it that you look for within building your team? Values, but value is a very big loaded word, mm-hmm. right? Accountability is critical mm-hmm. <laughs> within, within my team. And ownership, both go hand in hand, I guess. And that's 
that's the essence, really. I mean, just accountability and ownership. I feel that if you have that, then the rest is the logical consequence. Because if you feel accountable, you will do the best you can Mm -hmm. for yourself and for the team and for the company. The sense of ownership is, is very important to me because I feel if you have it, then you own your mistakes and you know how to share your successes and recognize the value and the contribution of every team member or, or every colleague. So I, I find those two to be the essence, yeah. Mm. And then just open, critical, I mean, critical thinking, open feedback is something also very important. The rest you can, skills are I can teach people skills. Mm. I cannot teach them values. I cannot change who they are, right? Mm-hmm. So you can teach someone how to do a PowerPoint, but mm-hmm. you cannot, exp- or you cannot. I mean, it's, it's better if the person understands already why is it important to be collaborative? Why is it important to recognize other people's contribution? Mm-hmm. This is part of who you are, right? So mm. that cannot be taught and, mm-hmm. and therefore that's what I look for. Mm. I mean, the power of collaboration, very important to you and and your journey. And I think a nice way to kind of end this episode, and one thing we spoke about earlier was mentorship. Uh, You now also are quite conscious of mentoring your team around you. Did you have mentors growing up? Was that a big part of your journey in your career? Or did that just become a key element once you became a leader and you wanted to impact the team around you? I definitely did. I had models earlier in my career I had role models where I wanted to be them. And I think it comes with years and maturity. Now I have accepted that I will never be them, but I can be myself. It's not about mimicking the person because you have to remain genuine. And I think that's one of the most important characteristics of a leader. And people connect to you more easily if they feel that you are genuine. The trust is built if it's not about being soft, gentle or nice. It's about really being genuine. That builds the trust with the team. And so, yes, I did have mentors. And the one that I have right now, who is the reason I returned to to the companies are people, right? You choose, Mm -hmm. for choosing companies, we choose the people with whom we're going to share the journey. So, yeah, my, my current leader is probably one of the most inspiring leaders I've ever had. But on the other side, I learned as much from, I wouldn't call them bad leaders, but leaders that were not a good fit for me, Mm -hmm. let's say, that I didn't get along with. I learned as much from them, invaluable actually lessons, because they taught me who I didn't want to be. Because when you have great people, you don't realize all that. It's just so natural. Mm -hmm. But you don't realize the impact of uh, a leader's behavior or or attitude until you have experienced the bad ones or the ones that make you uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And then you know, okay, I I never want to make someone feel that way or I... That's not how I would do things with mm. my team if I was to mm. to mentor people. So, yeah. It makes you more conscious of it moving forward Absolutely. as a leader and, and with your team. Um, Sarah, I've enjoyed this conversation Thank so you. much. I've learned so much from you. So now I'm ready to go out there and conquer the world. And that's thanks to you. I hope you've enjoyed it. Have you? Thank you, thank you very much. <laughs> very much enjoyed it. And I hope the listeners will too. Absolutely. Well, thank, thank you so much me. once again for your time. Thank, thank you. you for having me. 
Women in Leadership brought to you by Heron Code.